the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and then are connected. And the connection that they, they both are an intro is both historical and textual. Historically, we know that these psalms were connected because in some ancient manuscripts, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are just one psalm. They're just combined as an entire psalm, so they're to be read together. But textually, there's all sorts of reasons to think that these two are connected. Just notice there in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man uh, who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That Hebrew word meditate occurs in the opening of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot, same word, meditate, why do they think about these things in vain? So right there we have this connection. Notice also we're told in the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not but who meditates on the law of the Lord. You'll notice at the end of Psalm 2 that the very last line in verse 12 is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you see there's a contrast being set up. And then finally, one more connection here. In Psalm 1, verse 6, we're told the way of the wicked will perish. We see the same line in Psalm 2, verse, um, verse 12. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So all of these connections tell us that these two psalms are meant to be read together and they serve as a preamble or an introduction to the entire Psalter. And what they're telling us is that the one who humbles himself before the one true God, seeking his desire and will, submitting to his instruction, looking ahead for his plan and his promises, is the one who is blessed or blessed. So that's the whole introduction. So we live in the words of the Psalms by faith, knowing that God is to be trusted, to be relied on, to, to continue to have faith in Him, to continue to humble ourselves before Him, seeking His desire and will. And that person who does all of those things, the person in Psalm 1, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord, is contrasted in Psalm 2 with the powers of the world and the nations of the world who rebel, who meditate not on the instruction of the Lord, but meditate on their own schemes and their own plans and their own desires. Now, of course, here in the United States, today is a significant national holiday. We've talked about this throughout our service. And as Christians, we can reflect on that as we've already done um, in my reading of Romans 13. But I will say this. I didn't select Psalm 2 because of it being Independence Day. Remember, I'm going through the Psalms. It just happened to be in between the series and where we're at. But I will say, Psalm 2 is not entirely irrelevant to a national celebration on this day. Because Psalm 2 is a warning to all people in all places and all nations that Christ alone is king and the nations belong to him. Just as Robin played for us, kings and kingdoms will pass away, but not Christ. The nations are his. And this psalm is an exhortation 
that we should seek not to domesticate God and make him, say, the God of America, or if we were Canadians, the God of Canada, or anything like that. It doesn't work that way. You realize Israel tried to do the same. They tried to domesticate God. They thought, as long as we have the temple, we're okay. As long as we have the Ark of the Covenant, we're okay. But it wasn't true, was it? You cannot domesticate God. God doesn't work for us. Instead, what we learn from this psalm and what we learn from the whole witness of Scripture is to not, not in, rather than trying to place God on our side, we need to ensure that we are seeking to be on God's side. And there's a world of difference between believing God is on our side and instead aiming to be on God's side. God does not serve our interests, whether they're personal or national. So this applies to you as individuals, it applies to us as a nation, it applies to us as human beings, as a human race. God does not serve our interest, God serves his own glory, as he should. And as a result, this psalm calls for an embrace of the one true king, who is Christ, and an embrace of his plan for the world. Not looking to our own plans, like the nations and the rulers do, but looking to his kingdom and what Christ wants to accomplish to redeem this world. So let's jump into Psalm 2, beginning with the first three verses. Uh, We'll have four sections. If you're outlining it, you can actually, most Bibles will, will paragraph it for you that way. That's a completely appropriate structure. Let's begin with the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? Remember that word, meditate in vain. The kings of the earth... ...set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So notice this picture. They're they're establishing themselves in this, this posture of hostility. They're standing up against the Lord... ...that's Yahweh, all caps, notice it there... ...and against His anointed, which is Hebrew Messiah... If you were reading this in a Greek translation, which was written 300 years prior to Jesus, you would read Christ, so Messiah or Christ. So they're setting themselves against the Lord and his promised Savior, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, apart, uh, their cords from us. And the picture here is we don't want any restraint We don't want anything on us. Sometimes I tell the story better around Christmas because it's far too hot, but I always think of this image. You know around Christmas time when you layer sweaters? Uh, That's a problem. I've always had a struggle. I think it's because I don't really lift my arms that high. My shoulders are a bit tight. So this is a picture of me getting into a sweater every Christmas where I'm struggling to get my body into it. And it's wrapped up all tight and I just want to rip the thing off because it's so uncomfortable. But you've got to wear it because it's cold outside. That's the sort of picture. We don't want the restraint of God on our lives. We don't want the cords of God around us. That's what this psalm is saying. These verses fairly summarize the human predicament. There is this deep-seated rebellion against God in our hearts. In reference to what theologians call original sin, Augustine wrote, nothing is so widely declared, and I think here he meant in scripture and preached by Christians, and nothing is more mysterious. Meaning, we're all well aware that there is this deep-seated problem in us, in our hearts, 
but it's also a great mystery that we can be so corrupt. When we look at the pages of Scripture, it is abundantly clear that human beings have a problem that is far more severe than we would like it to be. Human beings are not inherently righteous. There may be good things in human beings by the fact that we're made in the image of God, but it is not true that human beings are inherently righteous. Unlike some world religions that say humans are divine even, Christianity recognizes a rampant and irreversible problem within humanity. Here at Monument Heights in our Articles of Faith, in our Constitution, in the very beginning, uh, we use half of an old Southern Baptist document. In fact, it was the first Southern Baptist confession of faith ever written. It was the governing document, still is, for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, still governs all our professors at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's called the Abstract of Principles. Now, unfortunately, when Monument Heights adopted those articles of faith, they only adopted about half of that document. And one of the articles they did not include is the article on the fall of mankind. Look at what the abstract says about our problem. It says, God originally created man in his own image and free from sin. Okay, that's how we're made. But through the temptation of Satan, he transgressed, which is like stepping over the line. He transgressed the command of God and fell from his original holiness and righteousness whereby his descendants, his posterity, all those who would follow after him, inherits. This is what you get from being human. You inherit a nature corrupt and wholly opposed to God and his law. Just let that part sink in for a second. A corrupt nature wholly opposed to God and to his law. We're under condemnation. And as soon as they're capable of moral action, they become actual transgressors. So it's not a matter of if you will. It is immediately upon becoming human, you make that transgression. So opposed to God and his law. This is what we see in these three verses. We can see it in the power structures of the world, the nations, as the psalmist says it. Just think about the corruption in the world. Now, I fully believe that we live in a wonderful nation, but it is by no means perfect, and I don't think it is possible to be perfect. There is corruption everywhere in our world. It's the reason we have wars and power struggles, not just at the national and global level, but even at the local level, even at the business level, even around the family dinner table. There is conflict and strife because we are opposed to God and His law. And then as we turn our attention inward, just don't even think about the nations. Just look in the mirror, turn your attention inward, and we can see the same tendency to rebel against God in our own hearts. Or you feel it when you wake up in the morning. And you're just cold or dead toward the things of God. You're not interested in it. I feel that. Now I want to be careful here. Because there is real persecution around the world. Our brothers and sisters in the faith face some serious issues even today. Even in this very moment. So, you know, allowing for time zones. But in eastern countries right now, our brothers and sisters in Christ are faced with serious persecution. So that would have been about 12 hours ago, right, for them Sunday. We don't even experience a fraction of that. And that's a wonderful gift to us. 
But I, I, I do want to comment on one thing that we see in our culture. And that's the hostility toward Christianity that is only growing. And I think it's representative of these verses. Christianity is a favorite target of the intellectually sophisticated. Have you noticed that? It's not all the other religions, although sometimes it is. But particularly Christianity is a problem for people. Now perhaps it's because it's the world's most uh, influential religion. Maybe because it's the largest religion. Or perhaps, and I think this points to the verses, something more sinister is at work. Something behind the scenes is at work. There are power structures behind the things that we can see and touch. The psalmist says that the cause has been taken up against the Lord and His Messiah. Against His anointed. Restriction, submission, those are words we don't want to think about. Think about it in our society. And we're all products of this, so don't point the finger outside. We're all products of an individualized society. We hate the idea of submission. Even when that submission is to the God of the universe. That's hard for us. It's hard for any Western-minded person. But this poses no problem for the mighty and sovereign Lord. Look at the next few verses, beginning in verse 4 with me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we have this huge problem. All the power players are gathered against the Lord. But it poses no problem for him whatsoever. And here I must emphasize the magnitude the might, the power of the one true God. This, these verses, just these three verses, are a picture of God worth meditating on. I don't know how much you spend meditating on God, but as a a pastoral piece of advice to you, I would say that one of the most important things you can do as a Christian is meditate on God's character. I've found in my own life a direct connection to my ability to combat sin and press in toward holiness to the amount of time I'm meditating on God's character. So if you're struggling with something, what you want to do is not necessarily just fight that thing. You want to deal with the real issue, which is meditating on God, looking upward. And here is a picture worth meditating on. We often have such a small picture of God. We think He's incapable or asleep. But what Scripture tells us is God is not sleeping. He is not powerless. He is not incompetent. He's not, when He looks at the events of the world, wringing His hands in despair, thinking, what am I going to do next? That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the one true God. He's not thinking about the the news like we do and thinking about time in a linear fashion and saying things are just going off the rails right now. I've got to do something. I've got to convince people. I'm really hoping people see it my way. No. He's able, according to this psalm, to laugh at the folly of those who would oppose him. And here is an important point. While he sounds big and terrifying, and he is... He absolutely is big and terrifying. He is also good and righteous. And we must always remember that when we talk about His wrath and His fury... ...as we're doing here in these verses. He isn't a tyrant. He isn't petulant. 
He's not thinking, well, I'm going to throw a fit because people acted this way. He doesn't respond reactively like that. Because again, God sits outside of time, so he doesn't need to respond reactively in that manner. God is controlled. He's measured. And his anger is nothing like human anger. It's nothing like me driving down the road and getting cut off. Right? It's nothing like that. It is calm and collected and always understanding the entire picture beginning to end. And he has a plan. This is what we call sovereign. He is in control. Sovereign is not a word we use a lot, um, primarily because of our Independence Day connections, the fact that we rejected that for independence. But sovereign is an important theological word. He has, we're told, established his king over the nations. His sovereign. He has exercised his authority, his sovereignty over the nations. God has determined the course of history. Here's an important point. I know our world looks chaotic, and I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the next decade. Some of you have lived through decades of of this kind of up and down. This is just world history, isn't it? It's just we have up and down periods of the world looks like it's going to fall off off the rails, it's going to fall apart, and then there are periods of relative peace or whatever. But I know things are always scary, and we've just come through the last 16, 18 months, whatever it's been now, I think we've all lost count, uh, of this pandemic that's historic and that will forever mark the period that we've lived in. We'll go down the history books. When we're long gone, people will look back and talk about the pandemic, right? It, It is a historical moment. But with all of that said, the nations, viruses, political leaders, they don't determine the ultimate end of history. God is orchestrating all things to culminate in the completion of his plan for creation. And never once is that plan outside of his control. Never once has he lost the reins and said, what am I going to do next? Never once has God said, I guess it's time for plan B. It is always plan A. And it has always been since before he even uttered the first words that brought creation into existence. And it's necessary for us to remember that. Otherwise, we'll give in to despair. We'll give in to hopelessness. And why wouldn't we? We don't have a God who could do anything. He's impotent. But this is not a God who is impotent. And then in the next verses, we hear a different voice. We hear the voice of the king beginning in verse 7. And I just want to point this out to you that this is important. Because as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we sometimes hear them almost speaking with one another throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And this is something that even the New Testament writers pick up on. And some of the early writers in the church history, in church history, what we call the church fathers, picked up on. And here is a great example of that. So notice the voice switches in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. So we have Yahweh, right, all caps. The Lord said to me. Okay, so me is somebody different. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So everything in all creation will be yours. You'll be king over it all. All you have to do is ask of me. That's what this this king says the Lord, Yahweh, said to him. 
Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now the king of Israel is sometimes called the son of God. But on this side of the cross and from the vantage point of the New Testament and reading this psalm as Christians and, and, and knowing that Christ is the key to scripture, we know that it is Christ here who is speaking. It is Christ here whose voice we hear. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's the same thing we pick up on when we get to the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And we hear at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Or on the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. All of that is not that he is becoming the son, but that he has always been the son. And all of these promises are for his We know that, by the way, because we can go back to verse 2 where we have the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah mentioned. So we know on this side that the claim Jesus is the Christ is the claim that he is the one speaking here in these verses. And notice what we're told, the nations are his. The nations are his heritage. The whole earth is his. Everything belongs to him. Every corner of the earth and everything in between is his. And here's the important point. He does not belong to us. We don't put him in our pocket. We want to be on his side. He is not necessarily on our side. America does not own Christ No other nation owns Christ. Christ owns America and every other nation on the planet. Every nation that will come, every nation in the past, Christ owns those and he is the king exercising his complete authority over them. Notice verse 9 speaks of him breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. While we tend to think of Christ as this pitiful, you know, weak, meek man standing at a door and knocking or whatever, notice he is the king who will put this world right even if there is opposition. He's not incapable. He is more than capable of setting it right. We're told that he bears this rod of iron able to quench or quelch any would-be rebellion. This is the king we need, by the way. If you turn on the news or look around the world, we need a king who is not a pushover, but a king who is capable of setting the world right. A king who can deal with corruption. A king who can bring justice to the ends of the earth. Who can actually govern with authority and bring all the nations together. And this is the Jesus we see in the New Testament. We see it as he cleanses the temple, running people out saying, this is not honoring to God. We see it in his picture, in the picture of him as the returning king in the book of Revelation when he comes riding on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and a scepter of iron in his hand ready to break any and all who would oppose him. I think we would do well to meditate on this Jesus, to see his power and to see his authority Because the really helpful thing here for us is as we think about our lives and we think about our future, we have to remember that this this world and our individual lives are being governed by this good king who is more than capable. 
our lives and our future are governed by this king who has all the nations under his authority. Everything belongs to him. The nations are his servants. He is the king. And that is so important as we think about how to live out the remainder of our days and as we think about our hope for the future. The hope for the future is that Christ will set all things right. And as I tell you so many times, some of you are suffering, you're dealing with grief or you're worried because, because you're getting to a point in your life where you're, you're thinking about the end or, or, or you're getting to a difficult period in your life or this last year hasn't been good to you. All of that, all of that has to be brought into this bigger picture. This bigger picture of what Christ is going to do to set things right. The claim of Scripture is that Christ has already done everything necessary to win the nations as his possession. You'll recall in the temptation in the wilderness with Satan, Satan offered him everything. He offered him the easy way through. But Christ goes to the cross so that the nations might be his. He takes on the cross so that he might have the crown. That is so hopeful for us to see his power and his authority, to meditate on this biblical portrait of Jesus as not just a meek and gentle Savior, though he is that, and he is that for those of you who are hurting, but he is also powerful and mighty for those of you who are fearful or despairing. And we need both. This is the king that we've longed for. No presidential candidate, no world ruler will ever be able to do what this world needs. But Christ will accomplish it. And with all of that in view, we come to these final verses which call for us to respond to the king. You see, the gospel is an announcement. It's an announcement that there is a king. And the true king is going to return. And he rules the nations. And they belong to him. And because of that, you must respond. Picking up in verse 10, let's look at these final verses. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. And I realize some of your translations may say some different things there. The Hebrew is a little um, challenging. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And then there's this last bit. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here's the instruction. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice over his rule. Recognize his power and his might and sovereignty. And bow before him because he alone is worthy of our worship. Kiss the sun, which may seem to be wishy-washy, but really it's the idea of kissing a king's rings or something like that. It's a posture of humility and submission. It means embracing Christ and recognizing that there is one king and his name is Jesus. Remember what I said? There's a big difference between thinking we've got God in our pocket and instead endeavoring to embrace his side. That's what we're seeing here. Practically, this means we aren't the arbiters of right and wrong. By the way, that's the mistake Adam and Eve made in the garden. 
That phrase, knowing good and evil, many scholars think that that phrase, knowing good and evil, likely has the idea of being able to determine what is right and wrong. It's not a matter of being cognizant of what is right and wrong, as if they didn't know. It is the ability to determine right and wrong for themselves. And all of that is about a rebellion. All of that is about saying, we know better than the one true God. It is a rebellion against God's authority. In the same way, we are pulled in a thousand directions. Compromise is everywhere. The church right now is pressured to abandon the instruction of the Lord for cultural demands. And the pressure is growing every day because we desire to be relevant. We desire to reach the next generation. We desire to to have people like us and to see the church full. And yet what we can never do is bow to another king. We must continue to insist, as I've said so many times, on Scripture as the basis for everything we do. Because it is the Word of God by which we are sanctified, which means to be made holy. This is why we must continue to prioritize the glory of God as revealed in Christ. Why when we gather as a church, this moment is not just hearing a lecture from me, but this is a formative moment. It's a moment where we gather to worship and are shaped by the very habit of singing and listening to God's word and praying public prayers. We are shaped into the people of God. It's a habit, like going to the uh, driving range and hitting a bucket of balls, which does some of us no good, but, but, but... might might do some of you good, but it is a habit like that. It's essential that we gather for that purpose, not just to learn more, but to be formed, to be shaped as the church of God. And so it's paramount for us that we recognize that there is a king, there is a shepherd over our church. I am but an under-shepherd, as 1 Peter says, My job is to be faithful in the role I've been put in because one day the chief shepherd will return and I will answer to him. And as a church, we continue to press into shaping everything we do around the idea that Christ is our authority. As we open the pages of the Psalter and read these first two Psalms, we're shown an alternative way of life. It's a life distinct from the world. It's not a life of pleasure and power and prestige. It's a life of humility before the living God. Both Psalm 1 and 2 tell us that. Blessed is the man who doesn't go the way of the world, but who meditates on the instruction of God day and night, who is bathed in the word of God. Blessed is the one who who takes refuge in the king. Blessed is the one who finds his safety and shelter and peace in the king. This is a different sort of life. It's a life looking beyond this world and hoping in the redemption that is only possible in Christ. Looking beyond the kingdoms and the nations and the people and everything else and looking to the real king. And on this 4th of July, it is necessary to remember That our ultimate hope does not lie in a nation, as great as our nation is. But our ultimate hope lies in Christ, 
who is the king of the nations. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are we are honestly without words as we ponder Psalm 2. And as we see the magnitude of the one true God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the might, the sovereignty, the capability. And Lord, we confess that we often fret and worry. And yet, there is never a time when worry crosses through your mind because all things are being orchestrated by your perfect plan. There is never a time when you are wondering how you will accomplish it. And yet, in this great mystery of the Incarnation, Lord Jesus, we know that you also can sympathize with our feelings. And so we come to you as the one true King, the rightful King of all the nations this morning. And in fact, Lord, you have invited us who were once rebels in our own right. You have invited us to dine with you in peace at your table. And we'll do that this morning together. We'll take from the bread and the cup, remembering that you have done this so that we might be at perfect peace. So that we would no longer be in rebellion, but we would sit at table with the real king. Lord, I pray that that would be a grace to every single one of us who partakes this morning. I pray that it would be a witness to those who might be watching and a witness to those who might need to abstain from partaking uh, because of lack of belief or for some other reason that is between you and them. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes and hearts. I pray that here at Monument Heights, our hope would be in you and what you have accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb. And in the meantime, Lord, we pray as a congregation, as you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.